0: Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr.
1: Funkenstein. Tim has a story that he wants to start off with today, so I'm going to turn it right over to my man, Tilo.
0: So we talk a lot about travel on this show, and I was in preparation for this show, I was thinking about one of my first trips. To Oklahoma City before Bricktown was there, before any of that stuff was there. I was going up to visit a really small company who was an Austin chalk player. They were all, there was, you know, nobody, not everybody knew what they were, but they were a pretty small company. I get up there at lunch. My meeting's at one, but I get up there about a half hour early, and the reception desk is locked down. There's nobody there. The all the buildings are locked and you know, I want to get in and set up beforehand. So I'm knocking on the little basement windows because I can see people there. There's only two buildings at this time. And I couldn't get anybody anybody's attention. And so finally, someone looks up in the little basement window through the glass and sees me, runs out, opens the door, brings me in because he rec- he knew I was there for that meeting. Brings me down. He says, yeah, we uh, in order to get our network time, we play our World War II simulator game uh, over lunch. So we're not interfering with anybody's, uh, you know, ethernet and it turns out. So anyway, so this was Chesapeake back in the mid, uh, maybe mid to late nineties when they were pure odds and chalk player. It was fascinating. So the campus, so I juxtapose that to what happened. Now you go up to the, the Chesapeake campus now and it's, it's buildings and parking garages and soccer fields. And, you know, it's just an amazing, you know, like a junior college,
1: Really, it's, there. it's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely, it's beautiful.
0: But you know, back then it was you know these guys all gathered at lunch to play this role-playing World War II game while everyone else is scattered off to go eat lunch. It was just a lot of fun to sit and watch the last few minutes. You, know, one team takes the uh, Axis powers and one team takes <laughs> the Allied powers, and they're talking over the internet. It's just like you know, it's a foreshadowing to where we were gonna be in the, you know the in the two thousands with video games. But it was it was just fun to kind of see. That culture, you know, just playing together at lunch. And, you know, it it continues to this day when you go up there and you see everyone out exercising on the campus and kind of doing things. It was really a neat thing. So anyway, that was the early days of Chesapeake. So I was really excited to see Kevin joining the show because, you know, we can start talking about some of those kind of early days with Chesapeake. So with that...
1: Yeah, my, my man, Kevin Decker. Super excited to have Kevin on the show. A man who, at least in Oklahoma circles, needs no introduction. I don't know many people in this industry who have larger networks. I asked Kevin, hey, I'm talking to this company in, uh, in Denver or Austin or Oklahoma. Do you know um, this person? Well, I know the CEO. I mean, <laughs> Kevin, you, you got to dive into the fact that you were super early on at, at Chesapeake and, and stayed for 29 years, I believe. And now I've transitioned to doing consulting. But, but first, I want to start with those early days. What was it like in, what are we talking, early 90s? Yeah, it 1990.
2: was 1990. Yeah, it was 1990. I came right out of school. My sister-in-law actually worked at Chesapeake and was Aubrey McClendon's first employee. And so for about a year, I had been hearing pitches hey, you need to come to Chesapeake. You need to come Chesapeake. Mm. He called me one day and said, can you interview at 6.30 today? Uh, or, it's, yeah, 6.30 tomorrow, actually. And I said, yeah, I'd be, love to. And I said, I'll be up there. And he said, uh, that's 6.30 a.m. And that's, <laughs> <laughs> I literally got there at 6.30. I interviewed by 6.45 or so, you know, he hired me and I started that that day. I happened to be in between classes. Uh, oh, that's cool. And, wow. Yeah, and I, and I worked that night till 10 o'clock. And it was like that for the, really the next 20 years almost. But <laughs> years. And it was so much fun because you had two young guys. I mean, he was 31 at the time. I was 22. His partner, Tom Ward, was twenty; uh, would have been 31 as well. They were the same age almost to the day. So it was just there was so much going on. They were so dynamic. And there weren't very many young people in the industry in 1990. Everybody had left in the 80s. Eight- so it was, it was a blast. And, uh, it was, I was an accountant. I was a CPA coming down of school and three months in just, I was miserable. And Aubrey came in and said, man, you, you don't really look very happy. And I said, I'm not. Uh, he said, you want to go out in the field and, and start a new order, a new area for us, uh, doing some service company work. And I said, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm out there. So, uh, wow. so that kind of started my field work, but that's the way it was. It was dynamic. He was always, they were always looking for the best place to put people and, and uh, that, you know, that happened throughout my career.
0: Yeah. You can never accuse them of letting the grass grow under their feet. It was yes. quick decisions, fast moving, you know, go pick up a lease here and get the data and start working it.
2: It, it was. And, and data was the key, right? Even back then, it, even if it was manual, I mean, they, they were two of the first people I knew that had fax machines uh, in 89, 90. <laughs> and they were, I mean, they'd burn that fax paper up that old, I don't know what you called it. It was kind of half blue. And it would uh, spin around and curl up, but they would send it back to each other all day long, driving them around. I mean, I, I didn't do any accounting that first year, and uh, really much after that. But uh, it, they were just it, whatever the new technology was, and, and of course it was it was fax machines. But uh, it was that was state of the art time, and so they would they would jump on it, man. I feel yeah, like Tim, I, Tim, I feel like doing a millennial
0: know. check on having to tell people <laughs> what a fax machine is. <laughs> do we need to do that or no i i, I get, we're probably past that
1: <sighs> it's it's i mean people have scanners i think they're somewhat familiar with the concept but i can just hear that sound in the background they... <laughs> it's
0: crazy.
1: Was... so kevin where, where are you from are you from oklahoma
2: yeah i grew up in and uh, what we call the middale area where a ton of uh, college athletes came out of over the years it was kind of a a wealthy district in Oklahoma at the time uh, because you had Tinker Air Force Base, you had GM, one of the major plants there. And so all that money went into the school system and produced people like Mike Gundy, who's now a coach, of course. And so I could just list name after name, but uh, just a ton of great athletes there. And uh, just stayed here and loved being able to stay uh, in Oklahoma and work in Oklahoma City. So uh, stayed.
1: The, you know, the, the best part about the fact that you just said Mike Gundy on my podcast is the fact that I turned 40. I'm 40 right now, guys. I'm, I'm 40. You're a man? You're 40? I'm a man. I'm 40. And the, that's been the best thing about turning 40 is that I can say that all, as much as I damn want. But that—that nah, that was. Uh, if you go back to it, though, and it's funny, Corey Scott, who came on the podcast previously, had talked about this. That was actually because he wanted—he wanted them to ease off his players. Like he was actually being a good coach and doing a good job, and it turned into like a meme or a joke. But at the end of the day, it probably earned him some cred within the locker room.
0: If you go and look at that, I'm going to just bounce off of that because it's one of my favorite speeches of all times. And they took the snippet that was the worst part to take. He had the newspaper up and was yelling at the press about this is an 18 year old kid and you're taking yeah. him to task over this. No, no, no. You come at me. And I thought it was one of the best speeches ever by a coach. And it gets the little piece gets memed and then he gets made fun of. But what was one of the best things I'd ever heard of a coach defending his kids before? And that's yeah. what they take out. Anyway,
2: all right. You know, on the soapbox. What's cool about that. Though, what, I, what I love about it. Is he loved that publicity, and he ate the yeah. he ate it up, and that's why he does the you know the mullet and all that. But if you think about it, that, was in two thousand six, I believe, and it's that recruiting class that went on a few years later, at least that redshirt class that went on to to win twelve games and and have a fantastic season in the Fiesta Bowl, just one loss away from being in the in the. Uh, Whatever you called it back then, the BCF, I guess.
1: That's what's so I mean, you know, I know football's a I mean, of course, you're from Oklahoma, so it's in your blood, right? You you love football. But I mean, that's the thing about college. Growing up in New England, Kevin, it, college sports weren't as big of a deal. I mean, I guess I rooted for Boston College and I'd I'd like watching the big games, right? The rivalry games, but you don't you don't have a team unless you go to one of those schools, right? right. But I mean, I'll tell you, there was it's just so hard in college football to make the championship. You you have to be, you have to lose one game the whole season, right? Basically. And it has to be at a certain time in the season.
0: Yeah. a certain time and to somebody that was, you know, not the wrong part, not the wrong team.
1: Right. Yeah. It's a lot to ask.
2: Right. No, it, it's uh, that's why I love college sports. You can't predict it. And especially if you're not an Alabama or uh, Oklahoma or somebody like that, you got to be perfect. I mean, you can't, you can't slip up at all. And, Every once in a while, when they put one of those seasons together, it's a blast. It's a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, LSU had one. We we talked about yeah. that not, not too long ago. They just they put it the, all together.
0: It's the passion of the fans that yeah. is so different. Yeah, that's that's what I – over over pro, I mean, I, that that's the thing about the college sports to me is the passion of the fans and the loyalty of the fans. And it's and, not to a player. It's not to – you're not loyal to Tom Brady or to someone else. You're loyal to – that laundry. banner, that banner. Yeah,
2: <laughs> you know that's, that's a great point though because I feel like that transitions really well to Chesapeake. I mean, that is what it felt like. Even it felt like a small college. You know, when we first got there, maybe a high school. Yeah. was so small, but we, we literally—I mean, we worked ridiculous hours. It was seven days a week. A lot of times early on, and it was certainly twelve to to sixteen-hour days at times. And but it was a campus. It was, and we called. He called it a campus. Uh, they both did, uh, Tom and Aubrey. And it was a, it felt like a family. And I know I had some some health issues back then. And the very first calls I got either time were either Tom or Aubrey checking on me, mm. and then seeing if I could, you know, have a laptop installed at my house with Wi Fi. <laughs> 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 but was, uh, they were right there, and they always, I mean, they took care of you. And, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. It, like that, I've repeated that. But that's, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine a better place to start your career and, and just get to have fun.
0: Well, it's, it's a testament nowadays to see someone who's been someplace for 29 years. I mean, that's a testament to that statement because you don't see that anymore.
2: I I think it's a testament. Nobody was really sure what to do with me. Some of those years, <laughs> I, it, was, it was so much that, you know, when I started with the field stuff and the Austin Chalk you mentioned earlier, what I noticed real early on was we had great field guys. And, and to be honest, every company I've been to. I just love talking to the lease operators i love talking to the pumpers and when i would go out there they would say you know i can't spend any time doing anything with my wells but what i can do is i can work an excel spreadsheet the younger guys would and so yeah. we you know we create something for them and uh, it, at the time it was pretty innovative it's pretty old school now but those were the the kind of guys that i loved working with because they would just you I don't know. They were, they had this kind of spirit of entrepreneurship that I think spread all the way down through, uh, from Aubrey all the way down.
0: One of the things that I always was impressed with Chesapeake was how many times it kind of reinvented itself and was on the forefront of the new, the new trend earlier than everybody else. They weren't on the early part of the Barnett necessarily, but early to unconventionals, early to the second phase of the Austin chalk, you know, always taking that risk and getting out there early in front of everybody and being able to just move faster. That was a thing that was so impressive is they could move faster than any other company to what they there's a there's a trend, bang, go hit
2: it. They were great. I think and, and that starts at the top and they were really really good at taking technology. Not necessarily the first mover, but the the first, you know, exploiter of that technology and figure out whether it was horizontal drilling or whatever, that they're going to figure out how to use that and, and scale with it and, uh, you know, improve margins with it the best that they can. And, you know, they knew uh, going up front, whether it was buying huge acreage or anything else, they were going to be able to use technology, whether it was laptops in your courthouses or whatever, they exploited every pot- possible technology and they spread that to the rest of the organization. And they showed, I mean, there was people all over that place that you would think were IT and they weren't. They were just somebody who came up with an idea of how to use, you know, a, a laptop or, or a technology in the field or whatever a little bit better. And they, they spread that around to everybody else. And the more you did that, everybody get pumped and they say, hey, we can use this you know, for that. Whether it was a spot fire, it didn't matter. Any new technology, people were just hungry for
1: the, to me, that's a, a perfect segue into how you and I met, Kevin. And I'm not sure if you remember this, but I think I was I was with Seven Lakes at the time and at, actually at a GDS conference had met with one of your colleagues at the time who set me up with Matt Mayhew, right. uh, who was on the production team and ended up coming in and talking to you guys. And I remember having conversations and, and what I found fascinating, This is, again, end of 2014, early 2015. I remember you saying, Jeremy, I don't want to have a conversation around field data capture. I want to talk about routing by exception and production optimization. And, and, now, that seems totally normal, right? Everyone has to do that. But this was a point where that didn't come up as much. So I'm curious, sort of, when did it hit your radar that we have to do more than just send guys out to drive around in a triangle or an oval or circle and, and hit the same stops every day versus start being more like the Uber for the oil field and be more proactive than reactive?
2: I, I think, honestly, it started probably around 99 that we started thinking about that that's where we were going. Now, I don't, we didn't call it that. But what we realized that we were making some, enorm- we started in 99 doing a ton of acquisitions, And in order to do that, we, we did at one point over 135 acquisitions in wow. about an eight to 10 year period. And so yes. from my side, what we were responsible for back then there were several things. But the primary one, when we go live with, a, with an acquisition, you need to have 100% of the production historically imported. You know, pulled in because yep. data is key. Our reservoir engineers can make better forecasts. Therefore, you know we we hit our numbers. We hit our uh, cash flow forecast. All that information had to be in there day one. And you think about it, Some of those were thirty day close, and we figured out ways to to manipulate data to get to to start that. From there, we started thinking, okay, then how do, can we use some of this data over time to build different tools, whether it was a surveillance tool or you know a new field. Capture field data capture tool, and ultimately that that led to us having to centralize our production, to essentially use that as as kind of a predecessor to what we would now call a data quality process or data quality data management. We didn't call it that; we just made sure our data was clean. Yeah. Then by 2014, we essentially had clean data. When all these tools start popping up uh, with data science and you know big data and all that. We had clean data and everybody was coming to us saying, hey, can we utilize that data to, to start building some new technology that will help the field? And we'd been pushing for that for a while, but didn't really know what it was gonna look like. And that's when everybody wanted to use us because we were ahead of the curve because our data was clean from all those acquisitions over the years. And we had historical production back to the beginning of time. That's what set it up. And I would say to anybody who wants to start any kind of a data program or a technology program, it's about process processing people first in your data cleaning it, it technology is great and you, you want the best technology to put over that but before you even start that you've got to take care of the data and luckily we, we kind of backed into that one
0: yeah you, you're i want to bounce off of that that it's about people and data and I, and it's in that order because you can do all kinds of things with the data if they don't if they're not bought in or don't have the they're not going to feed the beast then it's just not going to work and you're going to have another kind of dead project. Like, And I'm sure there's been plenty of those projects along the way, but um, I'm reading your uh, guest blog that you did on W's uh, site here. I've been reading, I read that today on, you know, Free up the production engineers, use technology to free up the production engineers to go do engineering work. That's right. I mean, that is it's a novel thing, but you know, we put so much on these guys, free them up and let them go do real engineering and let them optimize the wells.
2: It, it's really focusing on the people with the technology rather than the other way around. It kind of stumbled into that one one day when we were talking about the engineering process, and people were saying, Well, I don't have time to do that because I've got to go down to the courthouse or I've got to. You know, do an AFE, or I've got to do whatever. And I'm like, wait, list, show me everything that you're doing, because we're setting up all this data for you guys to, to to do all kinds of cool projects with this cool technology, and they just didn't have time. And so I know, as I was leaving, they were reviewing a lot of that, and I was really excited because you know, if I was an engineer, I would be bored stiff doing AFEs and uh, those kind of things. And I think the new engineer today. You see a lot more of them that really kind of come with a data science background as they start. And I think that's where we're headed. But we got to get that workload off of them. That's just, you know, that a tech can do a lot of it. And so, yeah, that's we kind of again, it was one of those things where just listening to people, you found out that a lot of what they're doing has nothing to do with, with what they want to do. <laughs>
1: Yeah. You know, I think there's a, I have a few questions about what you were doing because what I thought was really neat and certainly Chesapeake had the ability to do it because they made significant investments, like you said, in, in people process and technology, but you leverage the field operations center to capture some of this data to sort of observe where your resources were going and maximize their efficiency. I think more companies are doing that now. Did you ever try anything like um, like drones or video or things like that at the yeah. in the field?
2: So we explored. We talked about it, and we went over to the GE Technology Center in Oklahoma City. Is uh, now it's the, it was the Baker Hughes Technology Center, and I think it's been donated maybe to Oklahoma State now. Really cool, and they were doing a lot of that drone stuff. And I noticed uh, Taylor Shin had an article recently that was showing some of the uh, drone stuff that uh, that Baker Hughes is doing right now. And this was five years ago, probably four or five years ago. They were talking about that, but w- my theory on that was that's great when it's ready, when somebody's doing it for real, then we'll jump back on that. But we did talk a lot about cameras, you know, putting some just you know cheap digital cameras out there um and do some video and, and stuff like that to, from a lease protection standpoint security but also from you know leak detection um exactly batteries but but we found there was easier ways to do that just using we had some brilliant data scientists there at chesapeake some of them are still there and some of them have, have moved on to other places and what they showed us is it's really about change management when you're talking about operate by exception you know for those who don't know it's, it's essentially. You're letting the wells tell you which well to go to. You're not going to every well every day, and we get I get pushed back a lot, particularly from some older executives who say, "Hey, you're not a prudent operator if you don't go to every well every day." And I understand that, but I'm going to argue you're not a prudent operator if you're not looking at every well 24 seven. If you're not, mm-hmm. you know, using the digital data, the data that you're getting off that well for the wells that you have it, you need to be maximizing that, and then you take that data and then you you're predicting, you predict know, you try to become predictive. Of what's happening and so what we did was used our data center uh we had great guys there almost all of them were data guys but they had a field background brilliant guys you know so a lot of them still there and so they wanted they were just hungry to make the guys jobs that they used to do easier in the field and so that's how we got a lot of buy-in those lease operators is they knew that um, you know that the guys that or were handling the data science were guys that used to do their exact same job. And and so they were much more uh, interested in changing and doing some of the things that we wanted them to do.
1: Yeah no thank you for that that insight i mean and i'm not going to make you do too much more on that because i know this is your area of expertise and you charge a lot of money to talk about this sort of stuff <laughs> as as you rightfully should because i've you know this is an area that i'm passionate about and and i know tim is as well but certainly you're one of the the foremost i think experts on on how to actually make it become somewhat of of a reality. Back to a couple sports things, right? I know that in the fabric of Oklahoma City is the Thunder. And I know that Aubrey McLennan had a hand in getting them there. They were the Chesapeake, or maybe it still is the Chesapeake Energy Arena. Can you talk about what it was like being an employee at the time, being friends with these guys, and then having this team come in with all these awesome young players?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I just... I think when we officially, you know, kind of knew that it was going to be coming in and you knew Aubrey was part of it and there was the big stink about Seattle. You know, they were so frustrated. And of course, we got Duran out of that deal. That was exciting. (laughs) Having, you know, a a guy that's been the news for such a long time and Aubrey that you would see him on TV one day and the next day he'd call you out by name on campus. And that wasn't because I was there 29 years. He would call you your name and you can ask any Chesapeake employee that was there when he was there. He would call you by name after he'd met you one time, and he could probably tell you what your high school's mascot was. I mean, that was his thing. He would sit down and do presentation nice. and he knew you. And so he carried that over, from what I understand, to the players. And a lot of the players really appreciate that, and that's a little bit different from that type of a a uh, owner. Plus, they were a little bit younger, probably, he and Tom Bo. Uh, and I know there were other owners, and I don't know as much about them. But, yeah, that was fun. And we get some special stuff that would come on campus because of, you know, having the players, having access to the players and being named.
1: That's awesome. But
2: I hope it stays that way. I'm, I'm afraid maybe it won't. I haven't heard anything one way or the other. But I just I love the company. Um, I love, I, you know, I love the people that are still there. Uh, they're busting their tail trying to get things turned around. So, yeah, I, I hope it stays Chesapeake Arena. And I hope that uh, uh, next year we beat the Rockets. That was painful this week.
1: Yeah, but that was they were I still think they had a great season. I mean, they expectations were raised every game, you know. They had a good really good run. And the other one, sports related. Here Tim's we go. on the side Here we game. go.
2: Back to Boston.
1: <laughs> and I do have a I do have a correction to make. My friend Travis Austin who listens to this podcast, shout out Travis Austin, Director of IT at Crestone Peak here in Denver. Great guy. He made a point that I think, Tim, it was on the uh, Chris Atherton podcast that I said the Red Sox didn't win the World Series for 85 years. It's true and it's not true. It was actually 86 years, okay? It was 1918 to 2004. However, I've always had a hard time with this because in 1994, there wasn't a World Series. Oh. Okay. So, I mean, it, okay. It works for now. Okay, but it? I'd still – I always had a hard time with that anyway so i just wanted to put that clarity out there i i I can do basic math and all that but it was 85 world series 86 years let the
0: record show jeremy was not wrong (laughs) but he wasn't 100 percent right
1: (laughs) yeah it's i'm not we don't need to, to get into the details of that anymore but kevin is is Obscurely, a Patriots fan that grew up in Oklahoma, not because he bandwagoned the Tom Brady Patriots, but Kevin, you gotta, you gotta tell me how do you do that from Oklahoma?
2: How do you become a Patriots fan? This is good. Well, it's it's a weird journey because I started out an OU fan uh, growing up in Oklahoma. Of course, I ended up at Oklahoma State, but up until probably my junior year, I was a huge OU fan. We had season tickets every year, and I remember um, in I guess it'd be about seventy three. That Chuck Fairbanks, who was the head coach of the Sooners, left OU and they went to the New England Patriots. And the next year, he drafted—I so want to say three or four—I don't remember exactly—but he also brought in some as you know free agents or whatever they were. I mean, he brought in some folks to, to try out, and so they had a lot of Sooners on that of those early teams. He uh-huh. was there for about five years, and he moved on. But that's what kind of got me liking the Patriots. And then, of course, I thought our year had come in '85. Uh, which uh, <laughs> squish
1: the fish, bury the bears.
2: Yep, but uh, and then it wasn't too much longer till uh, you know. Of course, Brady and and those guys came in, and, and it's going to be weird this year with with Cam. I just I was able to watch his press conference at at three o'clock today, and it was kind of fun to watch. And boy, he's he's enamored with Belichick. So I'm excited about this year. It's just going to be weird not to see number twelve back there.
0: So, Kevin, were you a Patriots fan back when they had the those old uniforms with the guy snapping the ball? That's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, I love those. I, I know everybody made fun of I it. I absolutely loved him because I, I think I was a pretty big history fan too. So to me, it meant more just, than just the, the Patriots. But uh, no, yeah, I was, and uh, actually had a, a, some gear, which was really tough to find back in the seventies in in uh, Yeah, <laughs> but I did. <laughs>
1: No, you're right. It, 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 now it's you know you type online the the old school patriots and you can buy anything from anywhere. But it wasn't always like that. People no, don't really. don't realize. We had yeah. to pay a pretty penny. That was back in the
2: Steve Grogan days. Oh yeah, yeah. yep. And uh, the Daryl Sting. I still hate the Raiders because what they did to Daryl Stingley and. In- if anybody remembers that, it, it nasty hit that left him paralyzed uh, for the rest. Uh, of the
1: Jack Tatum, yeah, yep. uh, that is is a sad part of the Patriots' history, certainly. And also, the Raiders stole a playoff game from them. So when the Patriots had the whole like uh, Tuck Rule like snow game thing, uh-huh. I had absolutely zero sympathy for Raiders fans. <laughs>
2: uh, I'm with you. I'm with you.
1: And things have changed since then.
2: Yes, that's right.
1: Uh, they're
0: Vegas now.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: To me. So have you gotten fun. any games in uh in Foxboro, Kevin? Never been there. Uh I've been to some Yankee games, but I've never been to in, in fact, other than the Dallas Cowboys, which are just convenient, I have not been to any uh pro football games in person. So that's on my bucket list now that I have a little more time uh being being away, or at least my time's a little more flexible being outside of Chesapeake.
1: Well, Kevin, you you uh, tell me when you want to go up there, and I'll uh, I'll make it happen. It sounds exactly. good to me. I was actually up last year for my for my birthday. They were, the Patriots were playing the Cowboys, but it was raining and thirty degrees, and I'm like, you know, I think I'll just watch this in a bar I, with my friends.
2: I think that was a wise move.
1: <laughs> As we age, Kevin, we we start figuring things out more. So so tell me about your consulting company. What are you focused on? It's called Peak, right?
2: Yeah, Peak. I, I, You don't have to really try too hard to figure out maybe. (laughs) But uh, to be honest, I just, I loved my days there. I don't regret one thing that that happened during those times, uh, with the exception of Mr. McClendon's uh, death. And that was actually after that. But I started, I guess, in November and started thinking about what what would I want to do? And uh, really decided I wanted to get back into consulting. I'd done a little bit in the 90s when I was with Chesapeake, when we put ourselves up for sale, and I loved it. And, so really what we've uh, focused on is just looking at, we start with a field and we kind of look at how the field are doing their their jobs and how we can make it more uh, more efficient. And I do share a lot of what I know, uh, you know, without charging fees, uh, like with the blogs and stuff and things we're doing sure. here. And the reason I do that is it's kind of the, the Google method, I think with TensorFlow, they put that stuff out there and then they learn so much from what people say and respond and, and I found that to be hmm. true. So I we started with field work, and we moved on. Now, didn't pick the best time, and you know March was not a great time to be on. <laughs> but uh, it picked back up in, in June and July, and it's really been a lot of fun. Uh, and I've met so many new people and so many new companies. But I think that the one of the best parts is kind okay, of what got me up and going a little bit is just with Chesapeake and the great people they had. There are so many CEOs, and CFOs, and COOs. And, senior directors and VPs around the country all over that are doing great things in oil and gas companies. Uh, so that's true. a blessing. And so I've, I've that contact you know list and being able to talk to those people and learn from them. And then occasionally somebody will need some services and we'll jump on that. But just getting to know those and getting to talk to those people for the first time in, in a while for some of them has been a, a, a lot of fun. So should we just work on, on technology challenges around the energy industry, both in the field, production accounting, optimization, those kind of things?
0: So what that's do you think fantastic. the next big wave in technology is going to be? Technology adoption, is it still kind of digital oil field, digital digitalization of the oil field or, I mean, AI is certainly, you know, a good buzzword, but is that the direction you see everything going?
2: Yeah, I do, but I, I see it doing it back to your, your people and data. I feel like that's why I'm, I'm really blessed to be where I'm at on the production side with some drilling background, but uh, it's all going to be about margin and scale. And I, I say that a lot in, I put that in a lot of tweets or uh, stuff on LinkedIn, but margin and scale to me, if, if you can't figure out how to do it, uh, your work, if, you're, if your lease operators have to go to every well every day, you're gonna get crushed. Uh, and I, I, I really believe that. And, and I know there's people that, are, that don't, don't agree and I'm, I'm willing to talk about it. I think you can do both and you, you've got, and that's just one area, but you've got to find ways to do everything we do in the oil and gas industry much, much cheaper than what we do right now, because we're not going to be drilling as many wells for a long time. And I kind of, it looks like the early nineties, a little bit, you know, uh, when we focused a little bit more on production and didn't, you know, just get real excited about just drilling and that's it, or maybe completions and that's it. We've got to uh, Chuck Yates. I think you guys have talked to him or are or, or going to, or whatever. Chuck has said, we're the, we're going through the age of the plumber. And I think that's, I think he's right on we've got to focus on our production side of the business and we have got to give them every advantage from a technology standpoint. And, you know, and, and again, review processes and just narrow things down, get them as efficient as possible.
0: Yeah. We should have Chuck Yates on this week or, or we should have him in the next episode or the one just after this one.
2: He's I uh, I don't know him very well. Uh, we've just exchanged a few emails, but I, I absolutely loved listening to what he writes and what he, what he talks about. And uh, he's—we need to pay attention to him because I think what he's doing is, is pretty impressive, and he—he he, completely understands that.
1: Yeah, he's uh, just hit our radar. I think because of you. Um, indirectly, you put him on my radar and I'm like, I need to have this guy on the pod. And I think his profile's really starting to, to rise because we really are. If, if someone understands the oil and gas industry, but also understands what technology is going to do, this is actually the time. You, you can't just slash 40% of your workforce and do business the same way. You have to create efficiencies. The only way to do that is with technology. Fortunately, great technology exists. So um, companies will be able to leverage that. But Still need somebody like Kevin Decker to help you do it right. I'll so, tell you
0: what, I'm, I'm not kidding that I've just got done reading the, the guest blog on the W Energy blog site. Uh, and from my pur- for my purposes, it almost exactly hits the points that we want to be hitting with our company, OVS. So I'm going to probably be uh, quoting it and pointing it back to the <laughs> W website as well. So you're going to get uh, two blog postings out of one, I think.
2: Well, I, I appreciate it. I, I literally... I've had so much fun uh, doing all this because that's what I found. I'm, I've never thought of myself doing much writing or uh, we're doing a webcast next week. And it, it's one of those things where a webinar, I mean, it's one of those things where what I've, I don't, I'm not super brightest guy in the world. What I do is listen and I, I will tell everybody, you know, go out there. If you want me to help you listen, if you want me to help you do this thing, I, I, I'll do it, you know, but I sound humble. I'm not trying to be that way. I, what I'm saying is go listen to your people. The answers are there. Those guys in the field know what you need to be doing. Um, yep. it's, you get blinded from that a little bit. So just go talk to your field. And if you want some help, I'd be glad to do it. And we'll help you find the right technology too. But uh, go listen to your folks.
0: It's, it's interesting you say that because that's actually one of the upsides of Jeremy and I doing this podcast that I didn't expect is just these conversations are helping me. Well, outside of just doing this podcast and entertaining people, I'm I'm getting a lot out of it just being on this side of the microphone. I hope other people are getting that as well. But, you know, getting that that uh, from other people, it's, it's been an interesting ride. And I'm sure it's the same thing, the feedback you're getting from writing these uh, guest posts and doing other things as well.
2: It is. They've they've gone kind of viral. And I've been a little bit stunned by that. And I think people want common sense, logical things to do. They don't necessarily want you to present them with this massive you know that's right consulting project so
1: you got it anyways we're gonna chop it here head into the long weekend i don't know when this is getting put out so that might not make sense maybe it will either way there's a long weekend coming up and uh we're gonna let kevin get to it so mr decker thank you so much man thank you so much
2: it's been a lot of fun and, and uh go pats
1: yeah baby.